Romans chapter 11, we're going to finish the chapter this morning as we look at verses 33, 34, 35, and 36. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, in a message I'm entitling, Exploring God's Wisdom, Romans 11, verse 33, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul has devoted a great deal of space to talking about Israel's spiritual past in chapter 9. Their current spiritual condition in chapter 10. And the nation's future in chapter 11. Paul confirms that God's plan through a series of proofs. Remember, he offers himself as proof that God isn't through with the Jew in verse 1. Historical proofs in verses 2 through 10 as we look at the remnant of the people in every generation that God has for himself. A dispensational proof in verses 11 through 24 as we see God's working. A biblical or scriptural proof in verses 25 all the way through the end of 36. In short, Paul concedes Israel's present rejection of Jesus isn't forever. There is a future plan, a future restoration, a future place of mercy, a future place of grace. And after thinking long and hard about Israel's past and present and future Paul bursts out in this song, or we might even think of it as a prayer of praise and adoration in verses 33 through 36. Paul, like I said, has given a great deal of thought to God's present plan and his not too distant future plans. The Jewish people may be hardened right now, but they're beloved of God. The Gentile people may be spiritually honored now, but they're clearly undeserving. The Lord is severe to some, but he's fair to all. And the Lord is merciful to all, to the Gentiles in verse 30, to the Jews in verse 31, to everyone in verse 32. And now Paul goes from the mercies of God in Christ in verses 30 through 32 to the mind of God in his dealings with humanity. In our chapter of proofs, Paul concludes with something that requires no proof. The depths of God's wisdom and knowledge, the unsearchable and unfathomable ways of God, our wisdom and knowledge is measurable, but God's wisdom and knowledge is immeasurable. We can talk about and we can even think about the possible and the impossible. 
But God can apply his perfect wisdom and his perfect judgment to both the possible and the impossible. And so Paul asks a series of questions. And as he asks this series of questions, the answer seems to be in the negative. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has become his counselor? No one. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one. Paul's declaration and inquiry leads to a proclamation of praise. Who can understand God's incomparable majesty? Who can comprehend his knowledge and wisdom? Who, what, or who can contain his eternal glory? And so, it begins with an exclamation of praise. Look what it says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Part of what I want you to do, even in that praise and even in that prayer, I want you to connect the dots of chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. God has chosen the Jews, verse 30. God has moved the Gentiles from the place of unbelief and mercy and grace to an acceptance of the gospel, verse 31. God's purpose is to move all of humanity from a place of rebellion and unbelief to a place of embracing his love and his grace and his mercy to accept Jesus and accept the gospel. God's purpose is to bring everyone to a place of from unbelief to mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. And the way that God plans to do this lies in the depths of his wisdom and knowledge in verse 33 How will he do it? In a very real sense, we're at a loss to grasp or comprehend the entire picture in verse 34. We can't earn God's gift, verse 35. In the end, God is the source of salvation and the instrument of salvation and the object of salvation in verse 36. God is all, not in the pantheistic sense of the word, in the sense that the Hindus or the Buddhists believe perhaps that that everything is God, but that's not what the text is talking about. God isn't everything. He is separate and distinct from his creation. So Paul will describe the weight and wealth of God's wisdom and knowledge. And so he's fond of a particular metaphor He uses the term, oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. I want to draw your attention, oddly enough, not first of all to wisdom or knowledge, but to that little word, depth. It's the Greek word, bathos. We get the word, bathosphere, from that. Some of you might be familiar with that word. It it, it means the deep. In Romans chapter 8, verse 39, Paul uses the word depth to describe God's love, nor height, nor depth, bathos. 
nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When Paul uses that term depth, we might think about it as digging deep into the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You know, when I was a little kid, I was fascinated by what was underneath the water. And for those of you who have been following in the news, you probably know about the ill-fated flight of the Malaysian plane that plunged somewhere in the Indian Ocean. It's two million square miles. That's just on the surface of the water. That doesn't count the literally thousands and tens of thousands of feet underneath the water, if you will. By the way, prior to 1929 and 1930, the furthest that any human being had ever, ever gone under the water was less than 400 feet. The bathysphere was designed by Otis Barton, In 1929, they had to figure out a way to go to a place where no one had ever gone before. To explore the depths of the ocean. Imagine you're trying to figure out a way to go further than you've ever gone. And now think about the depths of the wisdom of the ocean of of God. How do you go to a place... How do you describe trying to figure out the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God? By the way, William Beebe went in this bathysphere. He set the world record at that particular moment in 1934. He went 3,028 feet into the water. And he saw things that no one had ever seen before. Life forms that we had no idea even existed at that pressure and that depth. When Paul refers to the depth of the divine wisdom, it refers to God's providence in arranging in the best way possible his practical wisdom and providence in the affairs of men. And so it makes perfect sense what we sang earlier. The wisdom of God is understandable in the choices that God makes, in the plan that God has. The depth of the divine knowledge concerns his omniscience. That means he knows everything about everything. His perfect knowledge of everything past, everything present, and everything future. The Bible teaches that God has personality. William Evans writes, quote, Personality exists where there is intelligence and mind and will and reason and individuality and self-consciousness and self-determination, unquote. God is omniscient. God is perfect in his understanding and knowledge which is absolutely comprehensive. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the writer says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, the writer says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his going. God is aware of everyone, everywhere, At all moments. 
God has perfect knowledge of everything and everyone. God knows exactly where that flight went and what's happened. God has perfect knowledge over everyone and everything, including nature. In Psalm 147, verse 4, the psalmist writes, He tells the number of the stars. He calls them all by name, unquote. And I am certain that it isn't just any name. He doesn't name them like we do. That's AB1777 in the Andromeda galaxy. I'm going to suggest to you that God has really long names for every single celestial object in the sky. In Genesis chapter 15 verse 5, it says human beings can't do that. God has a perfect knowledge of everything that takes place in human existence, in human history. The Bible teaches that God occupies eternity and understands everything about it. God is great and therefore he will be sought. And God is good and therefore he will be found. And so what are those riches? In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. In one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the very next verses, one of the most famous verses because you're saved by grace through faith. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 Paul writes, in whom, that is in Jesus, in Jesus are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Imagine inexhaustible grace. Imagine inexhaustible mercy and love. Super abundant wealth of wisdom and knowledge toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul has repeatedly written that the Lord has lavished grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Grace combined with mercy because we were hopeless, because we were broken, because there was something horrible and terrible that had gone wrong. And when you see yourself as the object of his grace and of his love, when you see yourself in need of mercy, when you see yourself as the object of his divine compassion, then all of a sudden the foundations of salvation are ready to be laid in your life. Because guess what? You can't come to Christ unless you recognize that there's something wrong. Who is going to cry out for a savior if they don't really believe they need one? The riches of Christ are unfathomable. The judgments of God, unsearchable. That's why Paul uses the term past, finding, out. Look in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God... How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That expression, past finding out, is one compound Greek word. It means to trace out, 
by tracks. In this particular instance and under this particular context, it means unable to track. Paul uses a grammatical construction in the Greek language that's known as the double compound. And the implication of the meaning is totally unable to discover. Now that doesn't mean that we can't know anything about his judgments, but rather everything that we know, once we know everything, will always be less than what we can know. It will always be inadequate. It will always be incomplete. The secret decisions of God are beyond the power of human beings to explain. And God has things beyond the power of human discovery. You see, a God that can be defined and comprehended completely by human beings probably isn't God. It's probably the object and the subject, if you will, of your own imagination. So does this mean we stop looking for things? Do we cease exploration or discovery? I'm going to suggest to you, of course not. But contrast the poverty of man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Think about everything that God knows and everything that we don't know. Think about our ability to make good choices and then compare that with God's ability to make good choices. Contrast man's philosophy and science and poetry and compare that with God's revelation of what can be known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Imagine if you said, what's the most important thing we've ever discovered? What's the most impressive bit of information that we've managed to unearth? C.S. Lewis remarked, can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? He says something remarkable. Lewis writes, quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. He was right. I learned this early on when I was just a kid. Remember saying to the priest, well, well, if God is so great, if God is so big, can he make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? I thought I was smart. I thought I was asking a genius kind of a question. And the priest said, well, Mr. Tracy, aren't you the smart little one? Oh, 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 you're so wise, Mr. Tracy. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Well, Mr. Tracy, your question is nonsense. And the reason why it's nonsense is because you've asked the wrong question. The right question is, would God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it? And there I was, put in my place. Because some questions are stupid. (laughs) I know people have told you growing up, there's no such thing as a stupid question. They're wrong. (laughs) Intelligence is like underwear. Everyone should have a pair and you should never show to each other in a... Think 
about what's being said. We learn. And we learn what's right and what's wrong. We make choices that are good and bad. But God never makes a bad choice. God never learns. He never learns because he never has to. And so Paul gives a series of questions which we might be tempted to answer no on their face. He says in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And what's the right answer? The right answer is no one until he's chosen to reveal himself and reveal his mind. I want you to think about that for just a minute. We can know everything that he has revealed about himself. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, it says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know everything that he's revealed about himself. And we can know nothing that he has concealed about himself. We are ignorant of God's secrets, yet we are privy to certain mysteries. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, the Lord says, thus says the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What has God revealed about himself? What what has he said to humanity? Has he ever shown up? Is there anything that we can know about him? And the right answer, of course, is we can know everything that Jesus has told us about his love and about his mercy and about his grace. We can know everything that the Bible has revealed about him being a creator and a sustainer. We can know everything that's been told us in the Bible And trust that what the Bible says about our condition is true. That we're sinners in need of a savior. And so Paul asks the question, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And I think in part that the answer must be, Jesus has known the mind of the Lord because he came from God and he reveals God. Jesus himself said, I came from the Father to reveal the Father's will. Or who has become his counselor? Look what Paul is doing. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 in an abbreviated fashion. In Isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 through 14, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span. Think about that. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? 
or is his counselor hath taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And who taught him in the path of justice? The question, of course, is who can instruct God? Can you imagine God showing up and saying, Hey, you know what? I'd like a little advice from you. Well, you understand what a ridiculous statement that is. How do you counsel an infinite being, a self-existent being? How do you provide counsel for the being who is the creator? Who can instruct God? The Lord told Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God has his reasons for everything that he does. And it's with infinite wisdom and infinite power. He makes all things bend and yield to his will. The very famous songwriter Isaac Watts wrote, He formed the stars, those heavenly flames. He counts their numbers, calls their names. His wisdom's vast and knows no bounds. A deep where all our Our thoughts are drowned once we take the plunge and we go into the mind of God. We find ourselves in a depth where quite literally we can't survive. Paul asks the question, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Think about what Paul is saying. God's riches, unfathomable. God's judgments, unsearchable. God's ways, unknowable. God's profile, unobtainable. God's needs, unmeetable. So when he says, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him, has God ever received anything from anyone that he didn't already have? Can you imagine? I thought you might need this, Lord. In Job chapter 41, again in verse 11, it says, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Hey, Lord, I thought I would give this to you. It already belongs to me. Hey, I thought I would give you my life. I thought I would give you my love. I thought I would give you this. I thought I would give you that. What exactly do you have that you didn't receive from him? Do you owe your very existence to him? Is the sum and the substance of your DNA based on the fact that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And if you received it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, and if you received it, why do you boast or why do you glory as if you did not receive it? We like to think of ourselves as creators. And in one sense it's true. But for the most part, human beings aren't creators. They're borrowers, aren't they? Michelangelo, when he 
create something out of stone still requires stone, doesn't he? When he paints on the Sistine Chapel, he still requires all of the sum and the substance in order to make this beautiful object. His hands and his eyes and his brain and his creativity all borrowed. We may think we discover some land or animal or artifact or principle or force. We may think that we can chart the heavens so-called at 13.8 billion light years across. We think that we can measure the water in the ocean or the sand in the sea. What is it that you have that God didn't give you? And if you're smart, you'll understand. There are some things that you have that God never gave you. He never gave you sin, and he never gave you rebellion, and he never gave you sorrow, and he never gave you disobedience. Is there something that you can give to God that he didn't make? The answer is yes. It's your disobedience, it's your rebellion, it's your sin. It's all of the things that have kept you distant from God and separated from God. Paul is saying, if someone actually supplied God anything at all, God would quickly repay it. And so, he ends with a proclamation of majesty. Look what it says, for of him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, We might clarify the meaning of the sentence by paraphrasing it this way. He says, quote, God is the ultimate source. God is the perfect channel. God is the final goal of all things, unquote. By the way, the preposition... Through, look what it says, for of him and through him. The Greek word there is dia. It means to cut or to channel. It's a word that describes a mechanism where something is delivered to something else. It was a word that would be used to describe when they would dig a a gutter or a channel. When you're linking two bodies of water and it's separated by a piece of dirt and you dig the dirt away and you create the channel. That's what it's talking about. It's the channel through which the plan is accomplished. In a brief and powerful statement, Paul reminds the reader of God's sovereign control, perfect plan, precise purposes. Paul speaks of the origin of the plan and the operation of the plan and the object of the plan and the objective of the plan. David Hawking in his commentary puts it this way. Number one, the origin of his plan for him. Number two, the operation of his plan Through him. Number three, the object of his plan and to him. And four, the objective of his plan. To whom be glory 
forever. Do you understand what's happening? You've been taken into a journey into the mind of God, into the heart of God, and into the matchless knowledge and the wisdom of God. You are able to go somewhere where people have longed in every generation in order to go into the mind of God, into the character of God, into the heart of God. And remember, remember the context. Remember the context. God has a plan to save Israel and all the people of the earth. The apostles caught away as he considers the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the glory of God. The far-reaching purposes of God in Christ Jesus is that Israel will be saved, verse 26. The Lord's unchanged faithfulness all of a sudden fills Paul's heart with incredible joy because God is in the business of forgiving sin and reconciling sinners Jesus will return to Zion broken Israel will be restored Jesus will return to Zion and Jerusalem a new Covenant will be made with Israel. Gentiles shouldn't exalt themselves at the Jews' expense. God is not unfaithful to his promise. He reserves the right to exercise his sovereignty. He reserves the right to show mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy. And grace to whomever he wants to show grace. And salvation to whomever he wants to show salvation. And you know who that is? It's you. you forgive you cleanse you assure you Paul makes it clear that the church doesn't replace or succeed the Jews the Gentiles are given privilege and opportunity The breaking off of Israel and the adding on of the Gentiles. The restoration of Israel which will bring unprecedented joy, privilege, blessing to the entire world. W.H. Griffin Thomas called this the divine philosophy of history. I like that. The divine philosophy of history. Why? Because God is at work. God has always been at work. From Adam to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, David. All of human history pushing, pushing in a particular direction. A direction of redemption and reconciliation and salvation. God's call. God's divine purposes to unite both Jew and Gentile into a glorious unity. The body of Christ, the bride of our beloved. Why? For you. So you could be his constant companion throughout eternity. All of a sudden the friendship and the fellowship that was lost in the garden is restored at the cross. Why is there a cross? So that you can be loved. And so that you can have friendship and fellowship. 
Why is there a cross? So that Jesus can take your hand and walk with you forever and ever. Thomas writes, W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, quote, We are accustomed to think that history sheds much light on the Bible, but it is evident from these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, that the Bible sheds more light on history. The revelation of God's character should possess and inspire the soul of every believer. Paul writes, For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Do you remember what the word glory means? It's the word that incorporates all of the sum and the substance of the attributes of God. If you take every single characteristic of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, if you take every ounce of grace, all of the love, all of the mercy, if you take everything that's everything that belongs to God, you put it into that word glory. You might think that this would be a great place to stop. You would think, wow, if we were writing this book, we should stop at chapter 11, verse 36. But Paul has a whole lot more to say to the saints in Rome. In the book of Romans, Paul has covered the great themes of sin in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, salvation in chapter 3, 4 and 5, sanctification in chapter 6, 7 and 8, sovereignty in verses nine, chapters 9, 10 and 11, and in the final section of Romans, in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, Paul will speak of service. Consecration to God in chapter 12. Subjection to authority in chapter 13. Consideration of the weak in chapter 14 and 15. Remember the book of Romans. It's been a book about righteousness. How we need righteousness. How righteousness is given to us. How righteousness was rejected. But Paul refuses to close the epistle without some practical advice about how to live every single day. Deep in the mind of God and deep in the heart of God is the mechanism for forgiveness of sin, for real righteousness, for joy, for fellowship, Deep in the mind of God and hidden in the heart of God is the possibility of forgiveness and the possibility of fellowship and the possibility of righteousness centered where it's always been centered in the person of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. Does it surprise you that Paul's contemplation of the divine attributes of God and the character of God leads him to a place where all he can do is just simply worship the Lord and adore him? To whom be glory forever. One very famous Bible writer says, quote, 
the supreme son of the spiritual universe, the ultimate reason of everything in the world, and the work of grace is the glory of God. Whole systems of truth move in subordinate relation to this. This is, the, this is subordinate to nothing, unquote. It's a picture of God's glory being the center of the universe. And everything revolves around it. Thomas Benton Brooks said, The sovereignty of God is that golden scepter in his hand by which he will make everything bow, either by word or by his works or by his mercies or by his judgments. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, said, I cannot forgive Descartes. In all his philosophy, he did his best to dispense with God, but he couldn't avoid making him set the world in motion with the flip of his thumb. And after that, he had no more use for God, unquote. And I like that quote because Blaise Pascal is reminding us almost everyone has some use for God to explain why there's such a thing as anything. But they don't want to include God in their thinking, in their living, in their worship. They want a comfortable God who can explain things. But they don't want an infinite God who has the answer to all things. You know, the writers of the Westminster Catechism, in their definition of God, did it this way. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passion, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just, terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means cleanse the guilty, unquote. Remove any word. Remove any sentence of that definition. And almost certainly, it's not the God of the Bible that you're thinking about. What describes your God? What describes him and his character? In his plan. In his purposes. And so Paul brings us all back to a place. Where we're all willing to admit. His plan is the best plan. His choice. 
is the best choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for grace and mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the plan that you have for this entire planet and for the people on it. But most of all, for the plan that you have for us. For people who could love you and know you, who can walk with you. That your plan includes forgiveness and fellowship and a future. Forgiveness in Jesus. Fellowship in Jesus. And a way to live forever. Because Jesus will live forever. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a deep love for your wisdom. A willingness, Lord, to submit to that wisdom. A willingness to say, Lord, you're wise. You're just. Your choice is the best choice. In Jesus' name, amen.